Welcome to New Life Friday Night. Uh, this week, Andrew Arndt and I were in Holland, Michigan, working on our doctorates. We have one year left in our three-year program. And uh, yeah, thanks, Mom. Appreciate that. So I landed in Denver at 4.10 and got off the plane, jumped in the truck with Andrew, and we raced down here. So this was not a week where I was going to preach coming back from that. So about six weeks ago, I called my friend Jason Jackson from New Life Downtown. I said, Jason, and he goes, I got you, bro. So let me tell you about Jason. Jason and Sarah are the, the pastors at New Life Downtown. I have known Jason for 26 years, okay? So I'm 40, you do the math. I was a freshman in high school, 14 years old and I went to my church first day of my freshman year when I could finally go to high school youth and Jason Jackson was the new youth pastor. So 26 years ago I was playing drums in the youth group with this guy learning how to preach and calling us to follow Jesus. I've known Jason for all these years. He's a man of God. He went from Tulsa out to Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. Maybe you've heard of Asbury recently where the revivals have been breaking out all the good stuff. Jason taught there in the in the seminary. He taught Hebrew for 6 years. His wife, Sarah, she got her master's in spiritual formation. Just brilliant couple, godly couple, sweet couple. And six and a half years ago, they came to work at New Life Downtown. And so many of you have gotten to know them over the years. So Jason is here tonight for week two of our First John series. This is a man I know. This is a man I love. This is a man I trust. Would you give it up for the Reverend Jason Jackson? Thanks, buddy. Amen. Hey, New Life Friday night. It's good to be back with you guys. So good to see you tonight. DG, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, man. So good to be here. We get a chance to spend uh, every Tuesday morning together. We gather together with all of the congregation pastors in Brady's office on Tuesday mornings and just tell stories about what God is doing at each of our congregations. Uh, we're always just waiting to see what Joe is going to say of what happened at Manitou that week. Uh, but I'm so, I'm so encouraged about what's happening here at New Life Friday night and such an honor uh, to be here with you. As Daniel said last week, he did a brilliant job kicking off uh, the series in 1 John. So if you've got Bibles and you want to grab them and turn to 1 John, we're going to be a little bit in chapter 1 today and then diving in to chapter 2. When I was uh, at ORU, leading youth ministry, being in college, and the time I spent in Tulsa, I got to go on mission trips almost every year for about a decade. And there was one of the trips that we went on, we were staying at, a, uh, at an orphanage and doing a ton of work, building roads, mixing concrete by hand, and uh, the place that we were all staying, me and this whole other crew of college students, had no indoor plumbing. Instead, there were three outhouses back behind the bunks. I'll let you guess what they were named. First John, second John, and third John, written right there on the, so every time I say first John, I have this picture of these three outhouses, like just burned into my forehead. I can't open the book without thinking, oh yeah, remember those toilets. We want to encourage you as we're going through this series, keep on reading this book. Read it over and over and over again. Read a chapter a day, five days a week. Over the next few weeks, you'll get this book deep inside of you. A little bit of reminder of our background of what First John is and where it's set. It's actually a lot less like a letter and more like a written sermon. 
This is a sermon written by an early follower of Jesus who was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It's likely the same author as the Gospel of John and as those other letters, Second and Third John. They have similar style, similar themes, similar emphasis. When you read these, you feel like you're reading the same person. First John's written probably at the end of the first century, beginning of the second, sometime in that time period, 60 to 75 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means the author has been faithfully following Jesus for decades. And when you read John, the thing that should be bubbling up inside of us is, I want to be like this guy. Here, witness, he witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then 60, 70, 80 years He's been faithfully following the Lord, and at great cost. He knows what it was like to lose friends. In fact, most of his friends were killed for following Jesus. And here he is, at the end of his life, being called the elder in 2nd and 3rd John. He recognizes he's older in age, and he's overseeing these churches, and he's still deeply and passionately in love with Jesus. He's lived a long obedience, a long and faithful life. And he's writing to these churches that he loves, that he oversees in Ephesus, about 1,100 miles away from Jerusalem. So we're not quite a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but far enough removed. Far enough removed from those initial moments right after they discovered that empty tomb. Right after those moments of Jesus showing up on the road to Emmaus and coming into locked doors and saying, Hey guys, don't be scared. Then stop scaring us. Uh, Right after all of those things, we're now 60, 75 years removed long enough that there's now people leading churches and leading thoughts, leading thinkers, people that are influencing the church who weren't there. Long enough for them to come up with new ideas, with new thoughts, with new reflections. And these new ideas that are emerging, people are now beginning to teach false things about Jesus. They're being to say, well, he actually wasn't God in the flesh. He wasn't actually Israel's Messiah. He wasn't any of those things. He was this, and this is now what it means to follow him. They're beginning to teach false things, and it's disrupting the church. In fact, there's been people that have left. There's been a schism, a break, a separation. That never, of course, happens today in churches, so we have nothing to learn from this letter. Uh, But John's now writing to encourage those who stayed. He's writing to those who've said, no, we're not going to follow false teachings about Jesus. We're going to stick with what we know and we're going to stick together. But they're discouraged. This has been hard. This has been friends and family members and people that they've been doing life with who've now begun to believe different things and they're being impacted by their departure. In his opening chapter, John asserts that in the midst of this conversation about who is Jesus and what did Jesus actually do and what is true and what is false about Jesus, and there's these conversations around, well, who gets to say? John comes in and says, I do. He he asserts that he gets to say because he's an OG witness. It's like, I was there. (laughs) Jesus was here. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. I lived with him. I saw and heard 
everything. And it wasn't just me. We were all there, this whole group of apostolic witnesses, and we shared everything with you. The whole reason you know about Jesus. Because Jesus was here, and I was there, and I told you. So he's like, listen to me in the middle of these conversations. And then he tells them what's at stake. See, for John, what's at stake is not him claiming to be the authority. What's at stake for him is that he loves these people, and he knows what's at stake when it comes to Jesus. And what's at stake is life itself. John 1, or 1 John 1, verse 3 says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship's a weird word, isn't it? We don't use it outside of church. It's not something that we use elsewhere. Some of you, though, grew up, and this was the prominent word for your household because you went to fellowship hour with your fellowship group in the fellowship hall, and even saying the word just causes you to have some sort of like post-traumatic church disorder. Uh, You're like, I just, I can't go back there to those moments and whatever they served for coffee and donuts. I I can't go back. But that's not what Paul, what, what John's talking about here. The word, as Daniel mentioned last week, the word here is koinonia. What he's talking about is a close communion, a participation in a common life. It's what Wendell Berry describes in his Port William novels, what he calls membership. It's to have our lives inextricably linked and joined to one another. See, and what's at stake is being members of one another and members of the triune God. He's saying that this is actually what's at stake here because the goal of the gospel is participation in the eternal life of God and the common life of the church. That this is actually what the gospel is meant to bring us into. Yes, the gospel is about forgiveness, but forgiveness from what? For what? Forgiveness that we might actually have fellowship with God and with one another. Salvation from hell. Yes, yes, all of that. Why? Because God wants to spend eternity with us and with one another. Participation in the eternal life of God and the common life of the church. John knows that this is what's at stake in these conversations, that to miss Jesus, to misconstrue Jesus, to misunderstand Jesus, to begin to depart from the truth of Jesus is actually miss out on participating in the eternal life of God, in the common life of the church. He's not just being fussy about doctrine for no reason. He actually knows that this matters because the invitation of Jesus is to in, into a full life, a full life with God and a full life with one another, a full life in the church. And so for the rest of the sermon, John begins to develop several major themes and major ideas that come back to this. And he does so in this poetic and cyclical sort of way. 
He uses these overlapping metaphors and develops these sharp contrasts among natural opposites that we observe in life. It doesn't read sort of like a a treaty or a, a kind of argument like Paul. Instead, here John is at the end of his life reflecting back on the beauty and the goodness and the truth of the gospel. And all he can do is kind of go into these circular poems where he's talking about one thing. He's like, oh yeah, and then that's like this. And then all of a sudden he's back again and it keeps overlapping all of these images, which is why sometimes it can be hard to follow along unless you can get into his theological imagination about the beauty of Jesus. And so he goes on and he, he talks about life and death, light and darkness, true and false, love and hate, good music and country music. I mean, just whatever it happens to be, you've got you to draw a line somewhere, D. You've got to draw a line somewhere. There's baseball and there's all other sports. Like, you just have to recognize there's good and there's evil in the world. <laughs> but he keeps coming back to these ideas and he's overlapping them and he's mixing them. But the first one he builds off of is lights. First John 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Light is a fitting and really frequent metaphor in the scriptures for God. Because when we think about light, we know that light is understood as the source and the sustainer of life. Even in the very beginning, God said, let there be Light and all life follows out of that. So light gets associated with life and darkness with death. Light also in the scriptures becomes associated with ethics, with morality, with how we live. Light is understood as a representative of what is right and good and true. And darkness is representative of evil. To say that God is light is to say that God is actually the originator and the epicenter of all life. And he's the determiner of all morality. He's the one who actually is the authority on human behavior, on what is good and what is evil. And so John goes on and he begins to tell us because God is light that we should walk in the light. He's building off an old Hebrew idiom that to walk is a metaphor and idiom to live. To walk in the light is to live this way, to walk this way. John learned that from the Old Testament. I learned it from uh, Aerosmith and Run DMC watching MTV as a kid. There's a certain way that you're supposed to walk. And as Steve and Tyler sang it, you're like, yes, I'm going to walk this way too with you. And this Run DMC came like breaking through that, like the wall separating, just beautiful. But John, he was a good Jewish kid. I was a good MTV watcher. He was a good Old Testament reader. (laughs) He says, but if we walk in the lights as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Interestingly, look what he says next. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He circles back. If we walk in the lights, Why do we walk in the light? So we might have fellowship. 
that we might participate in the eternal life of God and the common life of the church. And then from here, he goes on and he builds two ideas off his metaphor of light. The first one is about forgiveness. This is what we talked about here last week. DG did a beautiful job articulating the, the beauty of forgiveness, the seriousness of sin, the necessity of confession, that to live in the light, we actually must be honest We can't live in denial or in self-deception because what confession does is confession carries our sin out of the dark into the cleansing of Christ, into his cleansing light. And the second one he then builds is what we're going to talk about tonight in its obedience. 1 John 2 verse 3 says this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is actually not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, the love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This makes us nervous. Right, especially if you have any sort of Protestant theological background, we're like, wait a minute, John, you're getting really close to faith by works here, buddy. Salvation by works, you need to stay away from this. We don't want to go down that road. It is by grace. We are saved through faith, period. Don't talk to us about obedience. Ah! <laughs> stay away. <laughs> but the, the New Testament's not scared about that conversation. The New Testament over and over and over again says we do not come to know him as a result of our works. That's not how we come into participation in the the eternal life of God. We are not saved by the things that we do. However, when we come to know him, when we are rescued, when we are filled with the Spirit, when we are brought into the life of God, we actually get transformed. And we learn over the course of time to actually com- to keep his commands. This is the essence of discipleship. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite writers, describes discipleship this way. He says, if I am Jesus' disciple, that means that I am with him to learn from him how to live like him. That we are brought into fellowship with God We are rescued out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are forgiven from our sins that we might keep company with Jesus. And in keeping company with him, we're actually learning from him. And over the course of time, we start living more and more like him. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we get to know Jesus, the more we are changed by him, the more our lives begin to conform to his participation in the life of God must actually be lived out in our lives. It gets embodied in action. It gets embodied by keeping his commands. Of course, what commands? He goes on and he says this, First John verse 7, Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the very beginning. This old command is the message that you have already heard. And yet, actually, I am writing to you a new command. (laughs) Because its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. 
John comes in and he says, I'm not teaching you a new command. I'm teaching you an old one. Since you've had from the very beginning, something you've already heard, something that's really familiar. And then he changes his mind and he says, well, actually it is kind of a new command in some way. It's the new old command because something about Jesus has actually revealed the truth of the thing. There's something about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that has actually caused us to see things clearly. It's similar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he goes on, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus is interacting with the law. The word Torah in Hebrew, which means instruction. The root word means to throw or to cast or to aim at something. The whole goal of the law, the whole goal of all of the commands is meant to aim us or point us in the direction of God's will or desire for us. It's meant to show us this is what God's best is for humanity. And Jesus comes and he actually reveals its true aim. He shows us its full intention. He shows us what the law was pointing to all along. He takes the commandments further and deeper. It's like we were living nearsighted. Couldn't see a thing. And then Jesus comes and we're like, oh my goodness. That's so much more than I could have ever imagined. I remember my first TV growing up, my family had one of those like really big wooden box TVs. Some of you remember these and there was no remote control. You had to go up and like turn the dial and you built wrist muscles and forearms just from trying to turn that. And then you would try to tune in this analog antenna to see this grainy picture of a football game. And now we have 4K Ultra HD. We're like, oh, that's what that is. (laughs) What was I watching my whole life? This is what John's analogy is. Is it John that Jesus has come and he's turned the lights on for us? We were seen dimly and all of a sudden everything is bright. This is again John circling back to his opening image of light. And he associates obedience to walking in the light. And then he tells us exactly what this new old command is. Verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them completely. The core of the Old Testament law is love. To love God and to love others. The core of Jesus's law is to love, to love God and to love others. But Jesus turns the light on and shows us exactly what love is meant to look like. The first thing that we see in Jesus is that he extends that love from our neighbors to our very enemies. John here focuses though on the love for one another in the church because that's actually the source of the conflicts. The second thing that Jesus shows us is that love looks like the cross. That if we want to know what divine love looks like, we're meant to look at the self-sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus. Love actually looks like living for others and living with others the way that Jesus did. It's love in the way of Jesus. 
It's love according to his ethic. It's love that looks like sacrifice. And that kind of love remains as countercultural today as it was 2,000 years ago. In our world, we're encouraged to live for ourselves, to pursue our self-interest. We gotta look out for number one and gotta get what's mine. That is the essence of our culture. We're encouraged then subsequently to just let others live their lives. Just let them do them and you do you. (laughs) And in our culture, this is the new moral high ground. But in the church and with one another, we are called to live a different way. We have a different ethic. The new old command to love one another in the way of Jesus. To love is to participate in the divine life of God and the common life of the church. Love fuels our fellowship and fellowship fuels our love. Love is the way that we participate. And John in his letter gives us several examples of what this love looks like, but I want to highlight just two for us tonight. And the first one is this, John, 1 John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his love for us. So we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. John is echoing Jesus' words in John's gospel. There is no greater love than this that someone would lay down their life for their friends. Love leads us to lay our lives down. Love actually requires that we let go of some things. Love demands that we live open-hearted and open-handed toward one another. So I want to ask you, what is Jesus inviting you in your life right now to lay down for the sake of other people. This is the constant invitation of Jesus for us is to live our lives in his way, to lay our lives down for one another. And so our whole life of discipleship is about learning what Jesus is asking us to lay down for the sake of others. What is Jesus asking you to lay down for the sake of your spouse? What is he asking you to lay down for the sake of your parents? What is he asking you to lay down for the sake of your kids or for your roommates or for your coworker? Or maybe, or particularly for the person sitting right next to you. Or for the person that when you came in tonight, you hoped that they were gonna sit on the opposite side of the room than you sat. That you came later in hopes of avoiding them. That when you came in the room, you saw them and you looked the other way and walked the other way and tried not to make eye contact. What is Jesus asking you to lay down for one another? Maybe he's asking you to lay something down specifically tonight. Maybe it's something you're going, I don't know how to lay that down. And Jesus gently comes along and says, okay, I want to help you. I want to show you. I want to teach you what that looks like. Maybe it's something that you know that you need to lay down, but you can't do it yourself and something you need to ask help for. Talk to one of the pastors or go to celebrate recovery or find some friends that can come along and help you to lay something down. Is Jesus inviting you to lay down your desire for revenge tonight? That's what forgiveness is. Is laying down that need to get even, to settle the score. Is he asking you to lay down resources tonight? Do you find you're living tight-fisted rather than open-handed? 
and saying, no, I, I just have to keep what's mine. I got what's mine. I got to keep what's mine. Is he asking you to lay down other allegiances that you have that you might love those that are different from you? And say, well, I can't love that person. They voted. I'll just fill in the blank and you can just go from there. (laughs) I can't love that person. They go to Pine Creek and I go to Discovery Canyon. We're on opposite teams. We can't do that. What is it that you're saying, actually, this matters more. I'm not, I can't love that person. I can't be in relationship with that person because they don't hold these same allegiances that I do. In the church, we say, no, 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 no. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of all of those other things. Is Jesus inviting you to lay down preferences or comforts or conveniences for the sake of someone else? Is he inviting you to lay down your time to serve in some capacity or to actually take time to pray for those that you know so desperately need it right now? Is he asking you to lay down your pride? That you might even ask for help that you might learn to love and to live in different relationships with one another. Jesus invites us to lay our lives down. Love leads us to lay our lives down. John gives us another hint of what this looks like in verse 10. He says, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. There's nothing in our lives that would make another brother or another sister stumble. That if we live in the light, what John is saying is that we will actually lead others to the light. In John's churches, the false teachers are leading people away from Jesus and leading people away from full participation in the life of the church. He's leading them away from the very heart of the gospel of that kind of deep and intimate communion and fellowship with God and with one another. And John says, that's not love. That's not what love does. Love does not lead people away from Jesus. Love leads others to pick Jesus's life up in their own lives. It actually leads them deeper into fellowship with God and fellowship with others. Love leads one another further up and further in to greater conformity, to greater understandings of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So John invites us to ask that other question. Is there anything ungodly in our lives that is hurting other people that we also need to lay down for the sake of them? Jesus asks us to lay it aside, not only for our own good, but for the good of others. One of the great lies about hidden sin is that this is not impacting anybody else but me. But sin is always social. Sin is impacting our ability to love other people and to invite them into the deeper life of God and the church. It always impacts us in that way. Jesus inviting us to lay that down tonight. This is what love is. Love walks in the light of Jesus. It follows in the path of Jesus. It embodies the way of Jesus in action. This is the obedience that we're called to. Having been forgiven and rescued and redeemed and restored and filled with the Spirit, we're then invited to learn what it means 
to love one another. Friends, let us love one another because love is how we participate in the eternal life of God and the common life of the church. But what John is so fully aware of in this letter throughout from start to finish is that we love one another because God first loved us. That our ability to actually love one another is deeply related and connected to our ability to receive God's love for us. In her brilliant commentary on 1 John, Karen Job says there's a circularity to the love of God. Love flows from God to us and then from us to others. And in so God receives love back because we love the things that God loves. We love the people that God loves. It comes from God to us, from God through us to others and back to God as he delights in his children, loving one another. And so the first and fundamental invitation that First John sets before us is do you know the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ? And have you let that love sink deep into the very essence of your being? That the love might fill you up and begin to spill out of you into every relationship you have with one another. First John says, friends, let us love one another because this is what love is. Not that we loved God, but because God loved us. So wherever you're at tonight, would you open up your hands with me? And we're gonna invite Jesus into this moment, invite the spirit of God into this moment. And ask first, Jesus, would you reveal your love to us again tonight? In this moment of stillness, and when we come to receive communion, would you reveal your love to us? And in the places that we feel like we're not worthy, in the places where we have resistance to your love. In those areas of our lives where we love the darkness more than we love the light. In the ways that we find ourselves holding you at a distance. We're not believing in your love. We're not buying into your love or feeling in some way that we still need to earn your love. Spirit of God, would you come and wash us fresh and anew with the love of God. May we find the love of God overwhelming us right now. The love of God melting those hard and hardened and difficult places inside of us overcoming all of our resistance, overcoming all of the narratives that we have picked up in our lives that tell us that we're not worthy of love. Instead, love of God, come. Be revealed to us again in Jesus.
And then teach us to love. Teach us to love tonight. Would you begin to show us what you're inviting us to lay down in this season of our lives? Show us what you want us to lay down tonight for the sake of another. What you want us to lay down this week, this month, this year. What you're trying to graciously and gently and kindly teach us to let go of. That our life might be marked by love. Good things that we're holding on to and making them ultimate things. Would you just begin to open up our hands and our hearts? things that we hold, they're holding on to, we know that are not good for us or not good for others, would you begin to break those things off of us tonight and teach us to love? If there are things that we may need to make right with one another, would you give us the grace to do that, the courage to do it, the strength to do it? New Life Friday night. May you know the love of God. May you show the love of God to one another. This is the new old command. Church, would you stand with me right now? One of all our communion servers to come forward and be ready to serve. What we're going to do is walk through the room and get the communion elements. Go back to your seat, hold it there. But we're about to sing abide. Draw me close and teach me to abide. So let's let this be our prayer as we come through the room to receive communion. Let's, this isn't just filler space here. This is intercession space. Invite the Holy Spirit to teach you to abide. So let's worship the Lord. Let's come forward, get our communion elements, and I'll be back in just a minute, and we'll receive together. Come and receive.